0: to know Christ and to make him known. We invite you into the same journey with us now as we open the scriptures and as we ask God to teach us and reveal himself to us in his word. Thanks for stopping by. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Great to see A happy fall to you, happy October 17, I believe today is, and what a great day the Lord has in store for us. And so if you have a Bible with you, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 3. Uh, if you don't have a Bible with you, we would love to give you a Bible. Uh, you can get up right now, there's a, there's a stack of Bibles back at the back of the auditorium on a table. Feel free to grab one of those, and if you don't have a Bible at home, take it with you. Um, one of the best things we can do in our spiritual lives is engage with God through His Word. That's certainly not the only thing we can do, but certainly one of the best things we can do, because we want to be people who are grounded and, f- and, and planted upon that which is true. Um, And and so we have an incredible opportunity to look at the story of a guy by the name of Nicodemus this morning. And we've been in a sermon series this fall entitled Band-Aids, Buckets, and Table. And one of the things we've just wanted to share with you is that true, meaningful, spiritual life change happens when we meet with God in a relationship. God wants to meet with you here this morning. Can I say that again? God, God meets with you here this morning. And God wants to teach you. But he wants to have a relationship with you. We're going to look at a guy this morning in the scripture who, who was among the best of the best when it comes to theologians. He, he knew all about the Torah. He knew all about the prophets and their writings. He was the one to whom you would go if you had a spiritual question. And yet it's him who comes to Jesus to ask an important spiritual question. And Jesus looks to him and he says, you need to be born from above. Or you need to be born again is the way we might say it, but it's this constant invitation of Jesus where he essentially says, would you come to me? Would you come to me? A a lot of us spend our life moving towards religion or moving towards form and function and doing the right things at the right times, and don't get me wrong, there's a place for that, but sometimes we miss Jesus in all of that, Because we do things and we pursue things in our own strength, in our own abilities, and we completely miss that God wants to walk with us and he wants to live through us. And that's the story of Jesus and Nicodemus. Sorry, I'll try to get this in a better position for you. All right. So we are meeting a guy by the name of Nicodemus this morning. And I want to invite you to stand with me as we read this scripture this morning. I'm going to begin in John chapter 2 in the very last couple verses here because they connect us to John chapter 3. Here's John chapter 2 verse 24. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. These are the people who came at the festival of Passover and many had trusted in his name. But it says in verse 25, And because he did not need anyone to testify about a man, for he knew himself what was in a man. Verse 3 lands us with verse 1. It says this, There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, "'Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him.' Jesus replied, "'I assure you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God.' "'But how can anyone be born again when he's old?' Nicodemus asked him. "'Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born?' Jesus answered, "'I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the Spirit is Spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound. But you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be?' asked Nicodemus." Are you a teacher teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? Jesus replied, I assure you, we speak and we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about the things of heaven? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in Him will have eternal life. For God so loved the world, that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through Him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but whoever believes or whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. These are the words of God. Father, we pray that you would lead and guide us into truth. God, we know that the pursuit of knowledge is never anything to be applauded. God, we want revelation. So as we read these words, may they not just be words on a page. May they be words that the Spirit speaks to us in our heart, in our lives, right here and right now. And God, as you call us into relationship with you today, may we hear and respond with faith and trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. All right. So John's Gospel. You've heard some of those words most likely. You know, At least the, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We're looking at this passage, and it's probably the most famous words uh, of the scripture ever spoken in the last several decades, 100 years, maybe more, because they proclaim this great truth about God, but it's set within this story where Jesus meets a man, and not like a pagan man, like a religious man, like, like as religious as you can possibly get. And John's gospel is written. Chapter 20 tells us, verse 31. John says, I've written these things so that you may believe. He's likely writing to a group of Christians in Asia Minor. And he's wanting to speak into their life. And he wants them to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And that by believing that they may have life in his name. John's end goal in writing this gospel, and as a part of that, God's goal in inspiring this gospel is that you and I might have life, right? How many of you want to experience life? A couple of you. Okay, very good. Um, now, we do all sorts of things to experience life. For example, I have a friend of mine who's sometimes a little crazy, and uh, his name is, I shouldn't tell you, his name's Stephen, by the way. Um, he plays drums, and he went skydiving this summer. He didn't... I didn't ask him if I could tell this. But he went skydiving this summer. And to me, how many of you have been skydiving? Man, we've got a couple of people here. Some people are like, man, this is life. The wind in your face and the ground coming closer to you. Stephen's like, I, he's already signed up for next year again. That's how like all in he is to this. And I just said, Stephen, you're crazy. Because I can't imagine heights, let alone jumping out of a plane. But to Stephen, one of the ways you experience Life, jumping out of a plane. Now that's not the only way he experiences life because Stephen has an amazing relationship with Jesus. He he knows where truth is. But he experiences life in a totally different way than I do, right? John wants his people hearing this to experience life. And we go to a whole bunch of different things to experience life. We go to parties to experience life. We go to school to, okay, maybe not. Um, we, We do all sorts of things to experience life today. John says, I've written these things that you may have life. Because life is something that can only come from God. It's something that can only be founded in who Jesus is and what he has done. Because that's where freedom and that's where power, that's where liberty is found. And that's what he invites these people into. So he's writing this gospel so that they have life in his name. And Jesus is not just coming to give life. In fact, John chapter 1 says that in him was life. And that life was the light of men. In him was life. Just think about that for a moment. He's not just saying, I want you to experience life. He's saying, I want you to experience Jesus in all of his fullness. At least as much as we can stand the side of heaven. He wants us to experience the risen Lord in all of his glory because in him, there is life. Life comes from a person, not just this ethereal thing of experience. It comes from this walking with Jesus every single day that, that, um, that is part of the Christian life. And so at the end of chapter two, I read it for you, It says that Jesus knows exactly what's inside of man. There's people who are trusting him, but he knows that not everyone who's coming to him is necessarily trusting him. Some of them are still kicking the tires of this thing because they'd grown up within a certain culture, within a certain religious tradition that said, here is what you do in order to do X, Y, and Z. And and frankly, they just misunderstood a lot of things. You you know, the the, the Torah is inspired by God. The prophets are inspired by God. The writings are inspired by God. By God, but Jesus comes and he reveals himself to them as God, and they go, Hang on a second. And in this process, he's saying, You've missed the point of the scripture if you've missed me. And there's a man who comes at night. The man's name is Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a guy uh, who is, um, again, I, I said it earlier, he, he's a religious person. He's a super religious person. He is, as John says, a, a teacher of Israel. He is a, um, a leader of the Jewish people, a religious pe- leader of the Jewish people. Um, here's a photo uh, of the streets of Israel or of Jerusalem at night. John comes at night. He, he comes, not, not, or not, John doesn't come at night. Nicodemus comes at night. Whew. He comes at night. Why does he come at night? Scholars have talked about this a little bit. Um, Nicodemus is likely a fairly well-to-do person. He, he, he's a person who is a, a rabbi and a Pharisee, a leader of the people. And, and he comes as this uh, to, to ask questions of Jesus. Now, the Pharisees are people, uh, they're, they're a group of lay religious leaders. They're not priests, but they're generally loved by the people. So you have different groups in the ancient time, you know, first century period. You have the Pharisees, you have the Sadducees, you have the Essenes, you have the Zealots, you have the Herodians, all these different kinds of people are Jews. Uh, And each of these has a slightly different belief over one thing or another. The Pharisees were generally loved by the people. And they're distinct in that they sought to live for God in the world that God had placed them. All right, this is different, for example, from the Essenes. The Essenes were a group of Jewish people who believed that even Jerusalem was too pagan for them to be in it, and so they would actually, they, they went out of Jerusalem and they formed their own Essene community. It's, it's in the area where the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, down by the Dead Sea. Um, the Pharisees um, f- decided to live in their culture, but to s- seek to be distinct from their culture by keeping the commandments within the society. They didn't withdraw. They, they lived for God where they were. And they had several um, foci or different focuses of their, of their walk. Um, the first one is about purity, all right? they, they wanted to keep a life that was, you might say, in the world, but not of the world. They wanted to have distinct lines of here's what's okay and here's what's not okay. And we're going to go even to the extreme in order to make sure that we are ritually pure for dinner. Uh, we find this, for example, like in Luke 11. Um, there was... Um, most scholars say that there was a practice of ritual immersion, in other words, like a baptism type thing, that they would go through for ritual purification prior to a meal. All right? That's what the Pharisees would do. And they get kind of mad at Jesus in Luke 11 because he doesn't do that. They had added all these different um, prescriptions in order to try to be as pure as they possibly could. They also wanted to have the right observance of rituals, So so if they're engaged in something, they care about whether they are clean or unclean. And if you read through the Torah, there's things that make you unclean, and then there's ways in which you can become clean. For example, someone dies in your house, you're exposed to a corpse, or you're walking along the road, and you're near a dead body, you are now ceremonially unclean. And so there's certain things you have to do then in order to be purified, if you will. And then you can go back up and you can offer your gifts in the temple. All these things mattered in, in ancient Israel. And the Pharisees were very particular about trying to be clean. They also were very particular about properly observing the Sabbath. And so Jesus has a couple of interactions with them over this. For example, like the healing that he does of the lame man on Sabbath. He, he heals them on Sabbath, and they're like, wait, but you told him to pick up his mat and walk, which is work, as they defined work. And Jesus says, is it, good to, is it right to do good on the Sabbath? And he, he, he begins to redefine their understanding of what Shabbat was all about. They had a very proper observance of the Sabbath. They were also very meticulous tithers, okay? Um, at one point in time, Jesus denounces some moes on them because um, he says, you tithe your mint and your dill and your cumin and you forget the weightier matters of the law. Now, how many of you know whether or not you actually have mint, dill, or cumin in your cupboard right now? A couple of you do. Awesome. Way to go. Um, They would actually take this very small spice that's really ground up, and they wanted to make sure that they tithed properly off of this. How many of you have ever tithed off your mint dill or your cumin? That's what I thought, right? One down here. Way to go. (laughs) Um, So they were very, 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 very particular. They wanted to make sure they did not break the rule. Here's the line. We're going to back up from the line. We're going to make sure we don't cross the artificial line so we don't cross the other line so that we are right before God. Jesus has much in common with the Pharisees except one major thing he does not have in common with them. Um, We see this in the Gospels. Um, Jesus would break bread. In other words, he would have a meal with people who are sinners. The Pharisees would not want to have table fellowship that is mixed with people who are clean and unclean or Jew or Gentile, and Jesus constantly just bulldozes over this one. You find him going to a tax collector's house. You find him meeting with the woman at the well. You find him doing all these things because people are made in the image of God. Jesus understands that spiritual relationship with God does not flow from being a perfect, a, Observant keeper of the commandments. Rather, he rightly understands and teaches us that keeping the commandments flows from having a vibrant relationship with the Father. I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, I grew up in a tradition that observed um, Sabbath on Friday night, sundown to Saturday night sundown. As a kid, um, when sundown was approaching on Friday night, I knew that the TV was going to go off, and that saddened me dearly as a young man. And it excited me greatly as sundown approached on Saturday night because I knew I could hit the power button and catch up on the last baseball game or something like that. We had very strict rules. Graceful rules, you know, I, I can't say that I grew up in a legalistic home, but whenever we seek to keep these boundaries and boundaries are good, it's really really easy and it's very common for religious people to take boundaries that God has maybe given us or, or boundaries that we feel a sense of um, conviction for our spiritual health and the boundaries become higher in our minds than God That's what legalism is. It's saying, I find my identity, my worth, and my value in what I have done for you, God, instead of in my relationship with you. And what God wants to invite you and I into constantly today is he wants to invite us into relationship and allow the spiritual relationship we have with God through Jesus by the power of the Spirit to be that which then leads into, God, how would you have me live today? God, would you teach me from your word? Would you illuminate to my heart? Would you bring someone in to give correction or guidance so that I can better walk with you and live out of your scriptures and out of your word? It matters which one you start, which one you focus on the commandments or the relationship. They both matter, but it always goes from relationship. Then to, God, what would you have me do? Now, Nicodemus, so he's a Pharisee. Um, he is a ruler of the Jews. Uh, it says this in the first couple of verses there, in the first verse, a ruler of the Jews. What this means is that he is a part of a 70 member, seven-zero member of the Sanhedrin. So he is one out of 70 people who is responsible for religiously guiding the people of Israel. Can you imagine that way? He's like the pastor of the pastor of the pastor. He's not the local synagogue leader. He's not the local rabbi. He is the one of 70 who makes religious judgments for the nation. There's some standing, some power, I guess you could say. Because of this, he's likely financially well off, and he can spend much of his time in religious service, teaching, and study. He's a rabbi. In other words, he's a teacher. He, he is your tenured seminary professor at the most prestigious Bible school that you might have in your mind. He's the one to whom you go with with all your spiritual questions because he spent his life studying the text. He's the expert, right? He's likely older in years, which would have been more typical for, Sanhedrin, for a Sanhedrin leader not to be young. But it's this guy who comes at night down the streets of Jerusalem, up to jesus now since he doesn't have a day job except for teaching and studying he could have probably come during the day but he likely comes at night for a couple reasons number one he wants to have a private conversation jesus always has people around him and he wants to have a private conversation with jesus because he has questions you know if you are the most uh respected amongst your group or your clan or your profession Sometimes it takes great, actually always, it takes great humility to say, I have no idea what to do here. He's coming to Jesus to say, I I don't know how to make sense of this. I I, I don't know what this means. And he engages Jesus with three different questions. Night is also a, a... metaphor that Jesus uh, uses to contrast the truth of himself. You know, in chapter 1 it says, In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And so John is picking up on this light in darkness metaphor on a very, like, real practical level. But also, in the sense of the gospel, he's contrasting things. Light has to do with following in the ways of God. Darkness has to do with pursuing works and things of evil. Nicodemus has observed these signs that Jesus has been doing likely during the Passover from chapter 2, but yet he has not come to trust Jesus. And Nicodemus poses the first question to Jesus. He, he comes, and in verse 2, he says this, "'Rabbi, teacher, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him.'" All right? All right. He asks this question, and and he recognizes a couple things. Now, this is pretty big because he's a teacher of Israel, and he's calling Jesus, you're you're a teacher. But even in doing so, in affording that respect, he's saying, you perform these signs, which means God must be with you. But he's missed something along the way. And that's, God is not only with Jesus. Jesus is actually God. And this is part of John's gospel. that that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the I am. And Jesus responds to him by saying, essentially, the only way to experience the kingdom, Nicodemus, is to be born from above. Now, Nicodemus is concerned with Jesus' teaching and the signs he's doing, and, and the Jewish people believe that all Jews who faithfully kept the law would be admitted into the future kingdom freely. But Jesus doesn't like focus on the signs here. He wants to engage Nicodemus in a relationship. For Jesus, it's not about information and knowledge. It's foremost about the relationship to the king. And he says, Nicodemus, you need to be born again or born from above is the way it literally says it in the Greek. In fact, he says, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you are born from above. Born from above means from God. It refers to spiritual transformation that takes place in your life. It's a spiritual transformation that Jesus will say can only come by water in the Spirit. We'll talk about that phrase in just a minute. But this is spiritual transformation from God. A lot of us, we 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 seek to, in our own power, transform ourselves. This last week, I was I was working out with a friend, starting to lift weights. You know, the reason you lift weights is to make those muscles stronger, right? You you do multiple reps in order to build strength, in order to get better and better and better and better. Nicodemus has done all these things spiritually. He's fasted, he's prayed, he's engaged in religious observance, but he's missed the center of it all. He's missed that which actually empowers him for right living before God. Not even just right living, he's missed that which gives him standing before God because he himself has no standing. And the only way you gain standing with God is through God's mercy and his grace. Nicodemus has to come as a, as a very, very wise, smart, astute, religious person. He has to come to this and realize he can't do it himself. The kind of transformation that Jesus is talking about when he says you have to be born from above means that something in your life has to happen. You have to yield your life to something from above that you cannot fully control. Now Nicodemus comes back in verse 4 and he says, But how can anyone be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Now, like the conversation about wells and water with the Samaritan woman in John 4, Jesus is talking on a different level than what the person is expecting. Nicodemus, as a Jew, is familiar with the phrase to be newly born, because newly born in the context of Judaism means that you have new people or proselytes coming into Judaism. People who said, I want to become a Jew. There's a whole certain things you have to do in order to become a Jew if you're not born Jewish, but there was a way to become a Jew. And when you went through all these things, if you're male, the last one, one of the last ones was circumcision, all right? That's pretty final. It's pretty big and important for Judaism. You would engage in this, and then you would be termed newly born. You're newly born into the family. Now, Nicodemus, though, is a religious person, he's already a Jew. So he's like, what are you talking about, Jesus? I need to be born from above? Certainly, I mean, I'm, I'm an observant Jew, so that part doesn't apply to me. But Jesus is talking up here, and Nicodemus is down here trying to understand where the two things meet. John Calvin said it this way, that being born again refers to a renewal of the whole nature because of the defect caused by sin. Sin at its core is rebellion against God. Genesis records how God made mankind in His image, and He breathed the breath of life into Him. And then Adam and Eve chose to rebel against God. You could call it the great mutiny. They said, God, we don't want to live by Your rules. We actually think that we can be God. We think we can be like You. And so they took of the fruit, and they sinned against God. And what happened at that moment was spiritual death. I mean, mean, God said it, on the day you eat, you will surely die. And then, of course... Adam and Eve go to live several hundred more years. Eventually, a physical death caught up to them. But what happened that day was spiritual death. A separation from God that would forever impact every other human being born into this world, including Nicodemus, including you and me. This is what God is talking about. Because there's been a spiritual death, there needs to be a spiritual rebirth. And it has to come from above. And this is too great of a chasm for Nicodemus' religious obedience to span. He, he couldn't span the difference between being dead in his transgressions and sins and being made alive on his own strength. And that's what Jesus is trying to teach him. See, th- there's a lot of lies of religion. and, and it, I, I just finished up a class um, through Moody Theological Seminary, and we looked at um, apologetics and world religions. And there's a lot of world religions. We just looked at the main ones, you know, like secularism. Uh, Secularism has a high view of reason and science, and they, they seek to find all their answers and what we can see and what we can know and data and all this kind of stuff. But even the best scientists eventually have to come to a point of faith because there's things that, frankly, we cannot explain. Postmodernism believes that truth is relative. Your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth, it's all good, right? No, it's not. Because in the middle of that, at the end of it, you don't, actually not the middle, at the end of it, you have no truth if you say truth is relative. Hinduism believes that the soul is the reality of the universe. They believe that mankind is divine and that karma, which is the cause and effect of personal decisions, determines their reincarnation into the next life. Buddhism, in Buddhism, the goal is nirvana or enlightenment, and it's achieved through following four noble truths in an eightfold path, which is really a way of self-control. Islam observes five pillars that are key to salvation. And judgment happens when the good and the bad deeds are weighed to see if one made it. All the major world religions, all the things we've ever thought up, ultimately come down to how as humans do we get out of this ourselves. And this is where religiousness, use that as a word, religiousness can enter into even the church. There are some people who have grown up in very religious societies. They've never had a personal relationship with God because they've been like, well, as long as I do this, as long as I do that, as long as I make sure I don't do this or don't do that, then I'll be right with God. And that's not the message that Jesus brought. That's not the revelation of himself because his revelation is there's absolutely no way you and I can be made right before God because we have sinned and we have committed a mutiny against the one who created us. Jesus responds to Nicodemus, and he says this, I assure you, unless someone is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water and the Spirit. Um, People have talked about what these two phrases mean. There's probably two most likely examples of what water and the Spirit means. Um, The first way you could understand this is uh, you could translate it as... uh, unless someone is born of water, that is the Spirit. You know, there's that, there's that way you could understand it. He cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. The other way you could translate it is um, the way it is there, born of water and the Spirit. But then what does water mean? What water does not refer to a literal birth, which Nicodemus is kind of like, how can you be born again? How, how, how is that possible? And um, it doesn't refer to a literal birth. It doesn't refer to a baptism, which is the way some people have understood this in the past. But baptism doesn't mean that you're saved. Um, It's just a response, an obedience after you come to know Jesus. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, well acquainted with cleansing rituals prior to religious observances. And I like what Dr. Ed Bloom says. He says it this way. He says, John the Baptist had stirred the nation by his ministry and his stress upon repentance. In fact, John's baptism is called the baptism of repentance. And water, he says, would remind Nicodemus of John the Baptist's emphasis. So Jesus, he says, was saying to Nicodemus that in order to enter the kingdom, he needed to turn and to repent in order to be regenerated by the Spirit. So the idea is this. Water refers to this picture of John's baptism by which there's repentance. Because repentance is definitely a part of the salvation experience. All right, that's one way you could understand it, and I think that's a good way. Um, there's also another way that I think is helpful to understand it. And this just kind of gives, I think, a little more color to it. Um, in the Bible, in Ezekiel 36, you don't need to turn there, um, there's a promise of God to renew and to restore Israel to relationship with Him. Israel had chosen to go their own way. They, they had chosen to forsake God and to pursue their own idolatry and all this kind of stuff. And in Ezekiel 36, it says, it says, clicker doesn't work? I'll read it to you. It says this, um, chapter 36 of Ezekiel, verse 25, actually 24. For I will take you from the nations, and I will gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Verse 25, I will also sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and all your idols. Isn't that amazing? Like, they they had pursued idolatry. they had pursued, God, we want a different God, and really they fashioned the God in their own image. (laughs) And God says, I'm going to cleanse you, and I'm going to purify you from all your idols. He says in verse 26, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. Nicodemus, as an observant Jew, as a teacher of Israel, he would have known this passage. So I think Jesus is both saying, there's this aspect of repentance that is needed in your life, For the Spirit to come and to redeem, transform, change you from where you are. But there's also this promise that God has given hundreds of years before through the prophet Ezekiel. And this is what he's connecting. The story that God has been writing is not disjointed between the Old and the New Testaments. In fact, what Jesus is promising him, I want to give you a new heart animated by the Spirit, is something that he promised way back. I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will remove the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Bottom line, this is a work of God through the Holy Spirit. Nicodemus cannot do it. All he can do is repent. And by repenting, yield to the work of God in his life. And Jesus then uses another great illustration. He, because that can be kind of hard to understand. He says, "Don't be amazed that I told you you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going." Yesterday, I was out on the soccer field with uh, two of my kiddos at various times, and I decided to wear shorts and a sweatshirt to the first game, and I decided to pa- I decided to wear pants and a sweatshirt to the second game. Um, it was a little cooler as the wind came through. I couldn't see the wind. I could hear the wind. I could feel the wind. I definitely felt the wind. You could see the effect of the wind on the grass or the wind on the ball. Did I know where it came from? No, I just knew it was coming. This is part of Jesus trying to help this esteemed rabbi say, look, there's not, you're not going to figure out everything about God. Where does this come from? How does it happen? The wind, right? (laughs) And Almost on cue, Nicodemus responds, and he says, How can these things be? How can these things be? Jesus responds to him by saying, Are you a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things? He says, I I assure you, we speak and what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I've told you about the things that happen on earth and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about the things of heaven? Here's a religious person who's used to talking up at this level of theology. He, he could argue through all the history of thought, I would imagine, and how, how did this happen in this part of the scripture, and how does it connect to this part of the scripture. But Jesus says, how can we talk about things that are like Theology 400 series without getting to the core of what is most basic and most important. Nicodemus, that's your relationship with God. It's not enough to be religious. You have to be indwelt by the Spirit because that's where all truth, that's how all truth is revealed. In fact, John will come later in his gospel, I think it's chapter 8, and he will say that it's through the Spirit that we are guided into truth. Now, that, that, that's not to say that the Word of God is not important. It most definitely is because this is God-breathed, it says of itself. This is authoritative, God's Word is, for, for everything we need for life and godliness. But it's the Spirit who's going to make revelation in our lives and make these things connect. And that comes through saying, all right, God, I don't understand this. Would you teach me? And that sounds incredibly simple, Right? It's like, really, do do I just need to sit and say, as I read God's word, God, would you teach me? Yeah. (laughs) It sounds really simple. Can I explain it? Well, there's this thing called the wind. (laughs) Can I explain that? No. Nicodemus says, how can these things be? Nicodemus must receive by faith what he cannot understand. Many people are incredibly smart. Many of us here are incredibly smart, and our intellect actually makes it more difficult to accept the truth of God because God's ways do not always make sense to our minds. Nicodemus is certainly in this category. He's used to thinking clean, unclean, ritual observance, obey God, and yet he misses the truth that his heart is so broken by sin that he needs God to remake his heart through the Spirit in order to live in relationship with God and the kingdom. Thinking and using the God-given ability of reason and rationality, these are good things, but the overemphasis on them is very, very dangerous. Because when we seek to comprehend, instead of seeking to revere, we begin to make God subject to our whims and our ideologies. There always has to be a part when we have a relationship with God where we revere, where we like, God, I I don't understand that, but I'm going to trust because it's what you have said. Jesus then uses another great illustration for him. Awesome. Got the clicker back. Um, And he takes him, not spatially there, but he takes them in his mind to a story that is found in Numbers 21. And it's a story. The, The children of Israel, they are gathered and um as they are known to do they begin to grumble and complain and to rebel against god they've come out of egypt they've been saved by god's power and they've even sung of that power and it says in verse 4 of numbers 21 they sent out from mount whore by way of the red sea to bypass the land of Edom. but the people became impatient because of the journey how many of you have ever been impatient because of the journey Right? Oh my word, yes. We have this phrase in my house. It's a home, James, don't spare the horses. Because when we turn from wherever we have been to come home, nothing is stopping us. It's like gas. You get a couple minutes bathroom. Okay, I guess we'll stop. Actually, they stop for me more than anything. But the children of Israel are in a place, and it looks like this. And they're walking, and they're living in this. It's dry, it's hot, and they become impatient, And in this impatience, um, the people speak against God and Moses. And they say, why have you led us up from Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread or water, and we detest this wretched food. All right? God has already provided so graciously for them, and yet they complain. And I say that as though I don't do the same thing, but I honestly do. In verse 6, it says then the Lord sent poisonous snakes among the people and they bit them so that many Israelites died. All right? There is some judgment for you. You're unhappy, you're complaining. Okay. Here's judgment because they spoke against God and against Moses. Notice what it says in verse 7. The, the people then came to Moses and they said, "We have sinned." It, it's interesting. They don't come and say, "God, what are you doing with this?" They came and they say, we have sinned. We've sinned by speaking against the Lord and against you. And they say to Moses, intercede with the Lord so that he will take the snakes away from us. And it says that Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a snake image and mount it on a pole. When anyone who is bitten looks at it, he will recover. So Moses made a bronze snake and he mounted it on a pole. Whenever someone was bitten, And he looked at the bronze snake, he recovered. So, it's so interesting. So, they're impatient, they grumble, God sends snakes to bite them as judgment. The people come to Moses and they repent and they say, we have sinned, intercede for God to remove the snakes, and does God remove the snakes? No. God doesn't remove the snakes, but He does make another way. He has Moses make a bronze snake. This is a picture of one at Mount Nebo, actually. Um, he, he has Moses make a bronze, a, a bronze snake and he puts it on a pole. And he says, Whenever someone is bitten by the snake, <laughs> and if you love snakes, maybe that's not a big deal. If you hate snakes, you're like, Whenever I'm bitten by the snake, you've got to be kidding me, right? God, why can't you just remove the snake? Like, we could solve this that way. But God says, Whenever you're bitten by the snake, look to the pole. Trust that in that action of looking, you will be healed. Now, I'm not a doctor. I'm not sure how this would go for medical advice. But if you had your doctor come up to you and they said, you know what, any time you get bitten by a snake, there's this pole, would you just look at the pole and you'll be fine? You'd probably go find a different physician, right? You probably would. I, I would maybe hope that you would. But God leaves the snakes I think in part because He wants them to remember the pain of their sin. He wants them to remember they are a rebellious people. God doesn't take that part away, but He makes another way for them to be made right. And for the individual, it involves something very simple, but something very hard. It means that they have to look And they have to trust that what God said would happen. We're not always trusting people. We like to say, God, but you said that? No, that's not certainly what you mean. It it can't be that easy to come into relationship with you, to repent of my sin and look to Jesus and allow the Spirit to do the work in and through my life. And yet that's what God promised. I guess my point is this, a lot of us seek to live from knowledge, all right? Nicodemus, he seeks to live from knowledge. He wants to have the answer for everything, and he thinks that in finding the answer for everything, he will be made right with God. It takes great humility to look upon the one who died for us and to say, because of that, God, I, I repent and I trust can I explain it all? No. But what Jesus invites him into is this walk of faith to the religious-minded person. Believing or doing things for God never makes us right before God. There's not going to be a doctrine test in heaven to make sure that your eschatology is correct. There's not going to be a sort Soteriology test in heaven to to make sure that that is correct on all the particulars that are talked about within Christendom today. When it comes to your relationship with Jesus, it's quite simple. Have you looked upon the one who has been pierced, and have you trusted in his grace and his sacrifice alone for your salvation? Are you trusting in those things? Are you trying to make your own way to God by doing good works or by pursuing your own things in your life? I don't think it is um, by coincidence that Jesus says this story about the snake to Nicodemus because just a few, several weeks, months, years later, he's going to be put On a tree and he's going to die and he's going to rise again and the question for Nicodemus and the question for all of us is will we look to the one who has died for us and will we trust him will we repent of our sins and trust him because that's the only way we can have life and it's this picture that makes Jesus then go to the very famous words for God so loved the world in this way In this way in this way. He so loved the world, not just the Jewish people, but He loves the world in this way that He gave His one and only Son, that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but they will have eternal life. Do you have eternal life today? You can have eternal life today. Repenting of your sin and trusting Jesus' death and resurrection upon the cross, His power over the grave is our confidence. We, we, We sing about it all the time, God is our living hope. God is the one who has done all the work. Everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life because God did not send His Son into the world that He might condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Anyone who believes in Him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he is not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The condemnation that we experience apart from Christ, if you're not a follower of Jesus, the condemnation is not in Jesus condemning you. It is, as this passage says, you just haven't believed. You haven't trusted and looked to Jesus. And as a result, there's a difference. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he, does not, he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. Verse 19, this then is the verdict or the judgment. The light has come into the world, people of darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. Just like Adam and Eve in the beginning, we pursue our own end and we create mutiny against God. Years ago, I remember being at a, a concert with my family And I had a, you know, come to Jesus moment, I'll term it that way, where I hit this point. I couldn't go to church enough to make myself righteous before God. I I couldn't do all the right holy things, and I've said this to you before. uh, As a kid especially, I had a lot of anger in my life, a lot. Like slamming doors, stomping away, yelling at my siblings, all this kind of stuff. I had all these things. I couldn't fix that, right? I came to a point in my life where I said, God, I can't fix that. God said, I know you can't. <laughs> and the invitation was simple and it was clear. Jeremy, are you, are you going to look upon the one who has died and ro- risen again to give you life? Or are you going to keep trying to make your own way to God? And at that young age, I finally said, God, I yield. I <laughs> yield. I, I repent, God, there's so many things that condemn me in my life because my deeds were evil. Verse 20 says, "For everyone who practices wicked things, they hate the light and they avoid the lights, so that his deeds may not be exposed, but anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light so that their works may be shown to be accomplished by God." It's this difference. Doing things for God will never earn you a place in relationship with God. That's been given to you through Jesus' death and resurrection. that has been offered to you, I should say. However, the life God wants you to live, Jesus said, I've come that they may have life and life abundant. John says, I want them to believe so that they may have life and life in your name. The life that God wants you and I to experience today is life where Christ lives in us. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know what that's like. Day by day, we wake up and we say, especially uh, when we are close in following the Lord, we say, God, what will you have me do? I don't know where your story is today. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey. The simple invitation from jesus is this do you want to have life because life is found in one person jesus our father and our king god how many times even after coming into a relationship with you have i sought to find life in so many things of this world and yet god life spiritual vitality is found in relationship with you. God, would you forgive me for all the ways I find my identity in what I do? The things I've thought, the things I've produced, the accomplishments I think I have before you. God, would you remind me today that you have loved me so much, that you have sent your son. My identity is not in what I do It's in who I am in your sight. And God, I pray that for my brothers and my sisters here. It's so easy, God, to think because of this in my past. And maybe it's a past of of sin and and just outward rebellion against God. Or maybe it's a past of of sin and inward rebellion against God. Um, God, our past does not determine who we are today. We're determined by what you have done in our lives. And God, there, there may be people listening right now who need to simply repent, and you're calling them to repent and to turn and put their trust in Jesus and his death and his resurrection. And God, I, I pray, even though we cannot fully understand all of how that is done and accomplished by your Spirit, God, would you help us to trust? God, would you help us to see a glimpse of who you are? Spirit, would you reveal truth to us in our lives this day and this week that we may walk in the light as you are in the light? God, we want to have fellowship with you in a very meaningful way. We thank you, God. As John writes elsewhere, if we confess our sins, you are faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And God, there are some of us here today who need to rest again in that truth, who need to not walk as we've walked this week. And we need to come back to the cross and say, God, would you teach us what it means to follow you? Father in the stillness of this moment remind us that we are loved we thank you for that truth and that promise we pray in Jesus name Amen thanks for listening we hope that what you heard inspires you to take the next step in your faith If you have questions about this message or would like more information about our church, we invite you to check us out at fbczealand.org or call us at 616-772-4377.